My question, Fred, is uh, maybe you could interact with perhaps the most common debate or maybe the most common um, argument against what you just said. And that is that God here in this passage is not talking about choosing individuals, but he's talking about choosing people groups or nations. And so Isaac and uh, rather uh, Esau and, um, and Isaac represent Represent nations. People groups. Yeah, Ishmael yeah, people groups. and Isaac as well. Can you um, talk about that? Yeah, a few answers to that, actually. Number one, um, if you ha- can find access to it, look to a, um, for an article in the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society by Tom Schreiner from March of 1993, where he takes up that question exactly in some detail. It's a very, very good article. Again, it's by Tom Schreiner in the March 1993 uh, um, issue of the Journal of the Theolo- Evangelical Theological Society, JETS. Uh, More to answering the question, Um, Paul's anguish in chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, that is the passage that sets up this entire discussion. His anguish is simply that, not that uh, Israel as a nation has lost some temporal blessings, his anguish is that not enough Israelites have been saved. He's speaking of individuals. Um, That is, going back to Romans 9, verse Six, that's exactly what he is saying there, that there's a narrowing focus within Israel, that there are individuals who have been brought in and those who have been left. It's a very individual matter. Um, The whole subsequent context, chapter 9, the rest of chapter 9, also uh, through chapters 10 and 11 as well, is that uh, ethnic descent is not enough. This is an individual matter of God's choosing. Um, vessels of wrath, vessels of mercy, these are all spoken of in the singular of individuals. In fact, the verses that speak of God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy, the, uh, those, expression, those pronouns there, of whom, he will have mercy on whom, they are singular. All throughout he's speaking of those individuals within Israel and those individuals elsewhere who will be saved because of God's purpose. It's, 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 it strikes you, that argument that, that Ryan's talking about, strikes you as somebody that's grasping for straws. You, you read through a passage like this, and it's pretty straightforward, and they've got to come up with something to disbelieve it, so let's try that. But that's, I think, pretty easy. All right. If you will speak up, make sure everybody can hear, including me. I'm deaf. Okay. I don't really like microphones, but <laughs> here we go. Um, so... Uh, I've got a couple questions that are kind of related. I don't know how to exactly necessarily get them all going in logical order, but um, it basically boils down to, um, so you're talking, it, it almost sounds to me like you're saying two things that are almost contradictory um, in a sense that you're saying if we're saved it's because God chose us, but if we're not saved it's because we chose not to be, and that almost seems contradictory. So that's one component of the question. Um, the other part of it is, um, uh, like there's a, a Second Peter 3.9 and First Timothy something or other. It basically says God wants everyone to be saved. Um, so if you're saying that God chooses whether you're saved or not, then based on Second uh, uh, Peter and First Timothy, why isn't everybody saved? Is that clear? Yeah, great questions, great questions. Um, which one first? <laughs> um, Okay, the question on 
uh, where the fault lies. Can I have it both ways? Can I have my cake and eat it too, the way I've been doing, uh, explaining it here? And, and I, the answer is I'm confident, yes. Um, this is the, the teaching of Scripture that we have a fallen mass of humanity, a fallen humanity, each of them rejecting God, each of them rejecting God, God positioning himself, I will have you if you will come, all of them rejecting him. And in spite of their rebellion, God chooses to save some and leave some to their own choices. And that's the reasoning of Scripture. It is therefore your fault. I would have had you if you would come. But no one will. Well, I'll save some. But it's still your fault. It doesn't take away the fact that your unbelief is your unbelief. I'll have mercy on whom I will have mercy. The rest of you I'll leave to your own choices. Um, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 Let's look there. That's a very uh, familiar verse in this discussion. The Lord is not... This is 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now, the argument goes, this teaches then that God is trying to save everyone and in fact has done what he can do. It's now up to the person. Now, there are a couple of ways that I could handle that in this passage. Number one, God is not willing that any should perish. Well, that's a biblical truth affirmed everywhere. Ezekiel is, is especially graphic in that regard. Why will you perish? Why will you perish? Why will you perish? If you would come, I would have you. Why will you perish? It is such an insane thing. Why? And we find him pleading like that. God's heart toward the lost is one of compassion. And that's why we see in, in, in uh, Romans 10.21, as we saw earlier, that God stands with outstretched arms to a contrary people. He positions himself in that way. That might be the way to handle this verse. I rather think that there's something else going on here. And that is, in context, the Apostle Peter here is dealing with the critics that have spoken against the Christian faith. And in particular, they're mocking the idea of the second coming of Christ. And they're saying, come on, where is he if he's supposed to come? Where is he? It hasn't happened yet. And in fact, throughout the whole history of the world, all things continue as they are. God's never interrupted before. You really expect this to happen. That's the argument that Peter is dealing with in this passage. And he gives a couple of answers to that. Um, verse 3, he speaks of these scoffers who will come. Um, saying, where is the promise of his coming? Verse 4, they, verse 5, deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago, the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed would deluge with water and perish. That is to say, you've been saying, you say that God has never interrupted before, you've forgotten about the flood. He has interrupted before. So all he's doing now is pointing back, saying there's historical precedent for God's interruption in history. And so, verse 7, by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, 
that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. That is, you say it's been a long time, but you're looking at it from a very limited perspective. From God's perspective, who is infinite and above time, it hasn't been long at all. It's been a day. Oh, actually, 30 minutes, something like that, <laughs> the way he's figuring here. So that's his second argument against these critics. And then his third argument is, verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. God has a promise to fulfill. He's not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward... Now, there's a textual reading here. Some of the texts read, he's patient toward us. Other, the, the one that's used here, he's patient toward you. And in that case, he's pointing to you and the church. It makes really no difference. But he says, here's the reason God has delayed, as it were. He's got a promise to fulfill, not wishing that any should perish. That is, I take that to mean something like, God has a purpose that's going to be fulfilled. And when his last chosen one has come in, then Christ will come, fulfill and consummate his purpose. Now, I think that's the right reading of this passage. Either way to handle it, though, provides a very easy way to show that that objection is not a necessary one from this passage. All right? Um, If I can just follow up quickly. Um, So, uh, when you're saying... um, so and that's that's your, how would you handle then? Um, second, uh, sorry, First Timothy two, um, basically verses one. I guess it's, I guess it's kind of really three through seven or something like that, um, where he's basically telling us to um, pray for everyone, and that God wants everyone to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Is that? I mean, would you handle that? Differently, I mean, I, I guess I'm just guessing. Are you saying that God really doesn't want everybody to be saved and come to know the truth? Well, or you, you have to distinguish. <laughs> I'm a little confused. <laughs> yeah, we don't want to say here that God has decreed that all men will be saved because then His decree would fail, and no, nobody would want a, a God whose decree has failed. So, is this speaking then of again God's what's called His desiderative will that He has positioned Himself in a gracious way toward humanity? Why will you die? Why will you die? Why will you die? That could fit very well here. And in fact, that's the interpretation that's often given. It might be something else here, and I rather think that the interpretation here is to be um, um, cued for us from verses 1 and following, where Paul is speaking of prayers being offered for um, kings and all who are in high positions, and said all kinds of men. And I think that's the idea. All does not always mean all men without exception. It means all classes of men, and that seems to be what's happening here in this passage. Now, I'm going to add something to that. There are passages like this that if we are going to hold the doctrine of election, we have to be able to do justice to the language of it. Um, If he says he wills all to be saved, we have to understand that correctly in some way. But what I don't want to do, when when I have good options here, that says the language doesn't demand the interpretation that says God's done all he can and it's all up to us. But I have other interpretation here that does entire justice to the passage. I don't want to take one that's obscure and not necessary and then overthrow Romans 9, which is given to, itself, uh, given to expounding this at length. Uh, but rather, I'm going to take the other way. So, well, this is a very clear doctrine that's taught in Scripture. And these other passages, I'd, I'd better look to see how to, to reconcile them accordingly. I hope that helps. All right, over here. Gideon, thank you for taking this time to do all this. This has been great. Um, thank you. I have a two-part question. Um, 
One, it's a biblically related one, and the other one is a uh, historical related question. But I wanted to preface my question by saying that I'm in the predestination camp because uh, I believe God has raised up the whole nation of Brazil to win the World Cup on July 11th. <laughs> I'm already celebrating. Um, uh, I don't know how to argue with that. <laughs> so Paul refers to Romans 9 about Pharaoh's heart being hardened. And I just wanted to, I guess I'm trying to bolster my understanding of this passage. In Exodus 8, 9, and 10, there are several references to uh, Pharaoh and his officials' hearts being hardened. In one case, it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart yeah. and his officials hardened his heart. And then in another case, uh, like Exodus 8, 19, and 9, 7, it says that their heart was hard. It sounds like it's a mm-hmm. statement, a descriptive or something. Uh, and then in 9, 12, and 10, 20, it says, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's mm-hmm. heart. I, I don't know. The only Hebrew I know is oive. So I was just wondering if there's some... Some point. Yeah, of, the, the Hebrew doesn't answer the question. It's the, the Hebrew reads just like the English. In fact, I'll make it more difficult for you. The first verse that introduces this theme in Exodus says, "God says, I will harden his heart." So this is what sets it all up. I will harden his heart, and then we read, "His heart was hardened. He hardened his own heart." And I think it illustrates for us what I said. And says, "What does God have to do to harden his heart?" Nothing. He left him alone. He didn't have to introduce any new motive into Pharaoh's heart that was not already there. That Pharaoh was a wicked man, and God left him to it and hardened his heart thereby. Yeah, no, I heard you say that. I was just kind of curious about, it sounded like a passive action that he would harden. It means it would have to. Well, um, in one sense, his heart was hardened in the sense that God left him to himself. In another sense, sense, he hardened his own heart because he exercised his rebellion. Both are true. Okay. The historical uh, question I wanted to ask is, uh, I just wanted to get your comment, I'll sit down after I ask this, but uh, it seems to me that perhaps maybe in the modern era, there is this, um, this force for human autonomy and freedom, and uh, maybe going back to the Enlightenment, there's been this idea of man being free and capable. Excuse and- me a second. My hearing aid just went out. And I lost you. Could you start over with that and speak up a little bit for me, please? Let, let I me... did have the presence of mind to bring another battery. So I'm going to fiddle with that while you talk. Okay, so I can go now? Yes, go ahead. Okay. Yeah, it just seems that you know, since the Enlightenment, there's been this idea of, uh, of human freedom and playing down the idea that man is fallen or that man in his nature is evil. You know, thing, ideas like uh, Rousseau's The Noble Savage and just intrinsically man is good and is capable of making uh, that kind of choice or having that freedom. And even today we still have that sort of an egalitarian view of all men are like uh, have the potential to go to heaven or to be saved or to do good. I was just wondering, it seems to me like some of this discussion would benefit from a deconstruction, to use an overused word, uh, deconstruct that idea of human autonomy and, uh, and capability. Um, hang on just a second in case I've misunderstood your question. But if I understand you right, what you're saying is simply this whole doctrine is presupposed by the other doctrine of human depravity. Right. Yeah. And if we start there, the Bible um, makes it very plain that we are children of disobedience. What's that mean? That means we're predisposed to sin. 
Or as Jesus says, they hate, we hate light rather than darkness, because they're, I mean, rather than darkness because our deeds are evil. We won't come to the light. And all through the scriptures, there's that um, emphasis that man left to himself just loves sin and don't bother me. One of the most fascinating, I think, if you will take, turn to John chapter 6, one of the most fascinating expressions of this is in John chapter 6. I believe it's verse 44. I'm sorry, John chapter 8. And verse, okay, let's start with verse 44. You are of your father the devil. Your will is to do the father's desires. Your will is to do what the devil wants. He was a murderer from the beginning, has nothing to do with the truth, because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar, the father of it. That's just what he does. He's a liar by by nature. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. That's just fascinating, isn't it? He doesn't say, because I've told you a lie, you won't believe me, but precisely because I've told you the truth. You won't believe me. Now, you've all seen this in practice. If you've ever tried to witness for the gospel, you've seen this lived out. You go to someone and say, look, if you keep the Ten Commandments, God will have you. You can go to heaven. They'll believe that. Not true, but they'll believe it. If you say, you know, you really can't keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, but if you try, you can go to heaven. They'll believe that. If you say, if you keep the Sermon on the Mount, you can go to heaven. They'll believe that. As impossible as it is to keep the Sermon on the Mount, they'll believe that. If you tell them, if you're just sincere, you can go to heaven. They'll believe that too. Any number of those kind of lines, right? But if you go to them and say, look, there's nothing you can do to be saved, but not to worry. There's a Savior for sinners who's come. And he's invited you to come, and if you come and trust in him, he will have you. Yeah. And good luck with that religion thing. Isn't that right? Because I tell you the truth, you won't believe me. Why is that? Verse 44, it's your character. You're just like your dad. Now, if that's the case that we believe the lie and won't believe the truth, then election necessarily must be unconditional. Because if any condition were attached, we wouldn't, we wouldn't fulfill it. So human depravity presupposes unconditional election. If I answered that right. Yeah, and okay. just that the, in the other case, that uh, we, we, what's been in, uh, infected into the church is the idea of human depravity is not true. Is what? It's not true. I mean, oh, that the church is not true. Has embraced yeah. that sort of a, a, a oh, I'd, brighter philosophical idea. Of human I'd nature. love to take another hour and expound that. John John eight does it pretty well, but I you have expressions like sin written on the heart. I mean, this is that's great language for a computer age. We know what it is to program something. You're programmed for sin. You know, there's expressions of teaching like that all through the scriptures that shows our predisposition to sin, and that that is where we will stay until we are interrupted by divine grace. Fred, yes. can I jump in here with some uh-huh. new directions? Yep. Uh, 
because of the time and because of the lines, we need to do maybe one question per person and no follow-ups, um, keep them as short as possible, if that's all right. Now, uh, I understand everyone has great questions. These are, um, these so far have been great questions. We've gotten through two in about 25 minutes, though. Uh, at this rate, we're, we're not going to, these lines won't get. It doesn't look good. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> but please know that we'll be putting on our website some resources specifically on Romans 9, some other books um, that will be on the issue, of the doctrines of election or predestination, whatever you'd call it. And uh, so those will be coming on our website. And so if this is completely new to you, please let me encourage you to not think you're going to solve it in one quick question in a Q&A um, after Fred's message. It might mean that you, you read a book and you work through it some more. So let me turn things over to you. Thanks. Okay, thank you. Um, having been uh, raised on and still believing in TULIP, uh, this all sounds very good. Um, uh, however, if you move ahead to uh, the end of... Uh, Romans 11, which is kind of the end of Paul's discussion on this particular subject, um, he seems to talk about uh, universal salvation. Uh, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery. He calls it a mystery. And so all Israel will be saved. And then he drops down uh, to uh, verse 31. So they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you, for God has bound all men over to disobedience, so that he may have mercy on them all. So um, that seems to talk more about a universal salvation, and I wonder how that works in with uh, what we've talked about uh, in the main about Romans 9. Thanks. Yeah, great question. Um, in one sense, it does speak of a universal salvation, and that is in an eschatological, eschatological sense. And uh, we don't have time to work through this at length, but I think Paul's argument here is simply that uh, the, the promise was given to Israel. Israel has been set aside. Her setting aside has meant the gospel has spilled off to the Gentile nations. As a result of Israel's being set aside, the, the gospel has just bursted out through the whole world. And then he reasons, now wait a minute. If setting aside Israel meant the salvation of the world... What's it going to be like when Israel's brought back? And he says, it's going to be like, I guess, raising the dead. And it's in that sense that he speaks of the salvation of all. And I think in the end, he's speaking of, in the end, a time of the great advance of the gospel. And I think this takes us ultimately to Revelation chapter 5, where people from every nation, kindred, tribe, and tongue stand before the throne and sing praises to the Lamb that saved him. So it's universal in that sense. Christ has been sent to reclaim the world. That certainly does not mean every last individual will be saved. But he will save the world by saving a representative sampling from every nation. All right. Dr. Zaspel or Fred? Fred is fine. Fred, okay. <laughs> That's what I've always heard you so um, lovingly referred to by my family. Um, mine is a historical question. Okay. Uh, this doctrine of election written by Paul in 55 to 57 AD uh, was, I, I'm assuming, believed at that time by all. And then when did it change, and why did it change till Luther or um, the Reformers stated differently? Okay. And then, if that then believed, I mean, I don't know how far that 
the Reformation was in this belief, but then why is it today in our churches, these modern Christian churches today, when did it change again, and why did it change again? Okay, um, first off, it, I, um, I understand what you're saying, and we often refer to it as beginning with the Apostle Paul or beginning with Jesus, um, and that's, that's a great way to argue. Technically, Paul's staying here. It didn't begin with me at all. It began back with Moses and you know, all of that. We see it back in Genesis and all that. Um, the reformers coming out of the Roman Catholic Church um, clearly had to re-enunciate this clearly, and it became standard fare in Protestant churches immediately. Second generation in the Lutheran branch of the Reformation, it died off very quickly. Um, in the Reformed branch, it continued. In the branches that come from the Reformed branch, and that would be Baptists and various ones, it has died off here and there. Uh, the big watershed moment for it was, of course, Jacobus Arminius, um, the 17th century, the Synod of Dort, uh, whatnot, responding with it. But um, through the years, it has become a growing thing, uh, a, a growing propensity within Christian churches to, to pare down this emphasis on predestination because it can seem harsh. Now, I'm convinced that if it's presented biblically, it will not be harsh, it will be winsome and attractive. This is something that was revealed to us in order to make us rejoice. And uh, there have been people to preach this in a very bitter way, and I think they're mistaken and they misrepresent it. But partly because it can seem harsh, it's been dropped off and dropped off and dropped off. I can't really say there's a moment. It's been a trend for centuries. In our generation, there's been a powerful resurgence of it. Uh, part of it is because there has been, and I think this is probably the bottom line, there's been a powerful resurgence of expository preaching, taking the scriptures seriously, getting back to the book, and not just expounding on your favorite topic. I think that's played a big part in it. Also, there's been a proliferation of literature, and people are becoming more serious again about studying the Word, and all of that has fed into it, I think. All right, yes. Thank you, Fred, once again, just for coming and teaching. We're really, uh, I know I'm thankful for your faithfulness to the Scriptures, thankful oh, to God for you. Um, I'm the missions director here on staff, and I'm thankful uh, for the call that God's given me through the elders to mobilize this body, um, along with some lay leaders, uh, to be on mission locally evangelism and by sending and going to the nations. So for the sake of job security, could you just take a few seconds or minutes to talk about how that works in our responsibility to evangelize the lost and go to the nations? No, I'd rather you be nervous for a while. <laughs> that, that is if you agree with J.I. Packer in his book. If you don't, you can just be quiet and we'll talk about it later. Uh, great point. Um, it has often been said and said wrongly that these doctrines tend toward uh, an indifference in terms of evangelism. Number one, that is just historically balderdash. Um, the great movements of revival, the great resurgence of missions, all have been led, almost without exception, by those who held to these doctrines. That's just a historical note. Uh, more biblically, I think the reasoning goes something like, why would you evangelize anyone anywhere if you didn't have this doctrine? Because if it, if it depended on their free will, no one would be saved. 
And in fact, God reasons just like this in Acts chapter 18. Take a few minutes when you get home, read through the first uh, section of Romans, uh, Acts chapter 18. Paul is about to go into Corinth. It's a wicked city, known for its wickedness and rebellion, and it's just a horrible city, and he's a bit nervous. He tells us that. He came here with fear and trembling and all of that. So he's nervous about going into Corinth. And God appear, uh, speaks to Paul in a dream in, in Acts chapter 18. He says, Paul, go on into the city. You remember the reason he gave? Because I have many people there. Isn't that fascinating? That is to say, I have chosen ones there. They've not come to Christ yet. They've not heard the gospel. But I need you to go there so that they will come to faith. And that's the incentive in missions. We don't know who the elect are. They're not stamped with an E on their forehead or anything like that. God commands us to give the gospel freely to all. We know in doing that, his elect in his time will come to faith. And so... Would you rather go fishing in a pond where you knew no, one could, no fish would bite? Or would you rather go fishing in a pond where you knew fish will bite? And that's what we're talking about. God's elect will come to faith. God will see to it. And so God says to us, go get them. This way. So, so my question is, election alone equals salvation or equals being saved? Or could there be an elect that will not be saved or have salvation? Or is it something else in addition to you're elected, but then you have to be redeemed and also regenerate? Very good question. Um, Election itself never saved anybody. So election does not equal salvation. There had to be an atonement. had to be the Holy Spirit at work. And there had to be faith. And there has to be a gospel witness. God uses means to accomplish his ends. What election does is not save someone. It ensures their salvation. God chooses whom he will save. And he will make sure that the means to that end are accomplished. And so, are there elect who won't be saved? No. Are there elect who are not saved yet? Yes. But the very fact that they've been chosen is the guarantee. That's Paul's argument in, the, uh, in Romans chapter 8, uh, verses 28 and following. That whom he foreknew, he predestined. Whom he predestined, he called. Whom he called, he justified. Whom he justified, he glorified. This is one big package, and you look at it from eternity to eternity, that those whom God chose will then come to faith. Thank you. Say. Yeah, thank you. Yes, I'm trying to talk fast so Ryan will get mad at me. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, so my question is that, uh, okay, well, uh, when I first heard of Calvinism, I, I thought immediately that it was heresy. <laughs> But then uh, I was challenged by someone to read the Institutes of, you know, by John Calvin, and I did and became a Calvinist. <laughs> um, I've still been battling it for, you know, two, two years now, especially in the last six months I've been studying heavily. And in my studying, I came across uh, a sermon by uh, Matt Chandler talking about um, the, the question was, is there two wills of God? And so what he presented was that in the verses that talk about God's uh, not willing that any should perish but come to repentance, that speaks of like a lesser will, um, but that his greater or perhaps greatest will is that um, his name would be glorified. And one of the, proof te- or one of the texts that he used was uh, Psalms 106.6, where it says, uh, We have all sinned like our fathers. We have committed iniquity. We have behaved wickedly. Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember your abundant kindness, but rebelled by the sea, 
um, at the Red Sea. Nevertheless, he saved them for the sake for his name, for the sake of his name, that he might make his power known. And so my question is that is just that. Uh, would you agree with that? That you know he does have a will to that all would be saved, but that his greater will is that his name is glorified. Yeah, yeah, I think we have to say that. And it, the, the difference is, I think, in terms of his his compassion on all of his creation. And in that sense, God's love is over all of his creatures. Why will you die? Why will you die? The Lord looked down, this is Psalm 14, the Lord looked down from, the, from heaven among the children of men to see that there are any that did seek after him, to see that there are any that did do good. You remember Paul quotes that in Romans 3 and comes up with the summation, none seek after God. But yet in that sense, God will. He stands there with his arms outstretched to a contrary people. God will. God will if you will. But ultimately, God has a decree to honor himself by saving some. When all have rejected him, he is determined to honor his own name and show off his glory by being merciful to some. Does that answer? That's perfect. Okay, great. Over here. Hi, I have a question. I was wondering if you could just clarify repentance for me, explain that, and what exactly that entails from beginning to end. I'm sorry, I didn't hear the question. I was wondering if you would clarify repentance and give me examples of what that looks like from beginning to end. What is repentance? I'm, what it looked like Sorry. What? what are the steps of repentance? Oh, the steps of repentance? Okay. Um, I don't know that I can put it into a package for one size fits all, but in general terms at least, it means that a person has come to a uh, realization of his sin He has come to recognize the awfulness of it in respect to God. And so in response to that, he turns away from his sin to Christ, the only Savior. And in that sense, repentance and faith are inseparable. They're the flip sides of the same coin. Does that answer your question? Right, that answers my question. Uh, But I... I want to clarify. I had a friend that told me that uh, within the Bible there are clues you have to look for in order to be saved. Does this mean the same thing as repentance? Does this mean what? The same thing as repentance? No, I don't think so. Um... There are certain truths that you have to embrace in order to be saved. And that focuses on the person and work of Christ. That he's the savior of sinners. He has come to rescue us from our sin. And so we abandon ourselves to him in faith, trusting him to be our savior. The other side of that is we turn away from our sin in turning to him. And it's as simple as that. A person need not understand all the doctrine of election in order to be saved, for example. Aren't we glad of that? Okay, thank you. Okay, thank you. I understand. Thank you. All right. We're here. Yeah, howdy, Dr. Zassable. My question was, does Romans 9 teach that the church is the new Israel or not? No, I don't think so at all. I think, uh, am I going to get in trouble with this? 
I have a booklet that, uh, if you remind me, I'll send you one on the question. I think Paul's point here, very clearly in chapter 9, is there's a narrowing focus within Israel, and it proves that the promises to Israel have not failed. But as he expands on that discussion through chapter 10, and especially in chapter 11, he's saying that there will be, in the end, a great reversal. Right now, there's a small minority in Israel that are believing And the vast majority is in unbelief. There's coming a time when that's going to be reversed. And all Israel will be saved when the deliverer comes from Zion. That's in a nutshell what he was saying. So in that respect then, no, the church is not the new Israel. That God has promises. Now certainly Israel will be caught up into the church. That's what salvation is. But that doesn't mean that Israel as a nation does not still have her promises that were given to her. That's my understanding. Did I get in trouble? Okay, okay, back here. Can you hear me? (laughs) Can you hear me okay? Go ahead and pull pull it close to your your mouth if you need. Okay, so my question was, you said that um, God loves all of his creation, right? All of his creatures, everything he created. And you said that the Lord wants all to be saved. But the way that we're saved is God gives us faith. Mm-hmm. So if he's the one that gives the faith, then the ones that don't believe is because he hasn't given them faith. Right. So my question was... Um, I'll make sense of the love thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, oh, I'm well, sorry, did well, I interrupt? there was just one more part to okay. it. Um, my other question was, I, I know that we're, the per, our purpose is to glorify God. Mm-hmm. Um, so here on earth, that's what our purpose is. Um, w- after the second coming, wh- how does it glorify God for the people that don't believe to go to the pit of fire and the rest to be with him? How is that glorifying to him? I'll take the second question first. Um, because Paul answers it in Romans 9, verses 22 and following. What if God, desiring to show his wrath, and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known uh, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called not for the, uh, from the Jews only but also from the Gentiles. I think the idea there is what we find elsewhere, and that is that God will honor himself in their destruction. It will be a triumph of his justice. And he'll honor himself in that way, that rebellion against him must go, go punished. And no rebellion against him will go unpunished. That's the whole need for our substitute. My rebellion was, published, was punished. I was punished in the person of my substitute. And God has honored himself in either case, either in a display of his mercy or a display of his justice in condemning sinners. Let me take that a next step, unless it's misunderstood. Another question that often follows after that is, how can heaven be heaven with, with loved ones in hell? That's a tough question. And I think the best answer to it is to go to the book of Revelation, where it shows the redeemed, I get this, it shows Revelation chapter, early ni- chapter 19, 
the redeemed rejoicing and singing hallelujah when God destroys Babylon. And then in chapter 21 of Revelation, it says he'll wipe every tear from our eye. I don't think that means God will have a cosmic handkerchief. To, but I do think it means, and both of those I think illustrate it, that in our redeemed state, we will see things as God sees them. And we'll rejoice with him and agree with his disposition of justice. Uh, the, the first question, how to make sense of the, uh, the love question. If he doesn't give faith to all, what sense does it make to say that his love is over all of his creation? Well, that is a, first of all, it's a quotation from the Psalms. His, love is over, his loving kindness is over all of his works. Um, but obviously, just like in our language, we use the word love in different, in differing senses. I love my wife. I love apple pie. It's not the same. And it's, it's like that in scripture as well. His love is over all of his creation in that his, his, his disposition toward them is compassionate. And he will if you will. He will if you will. He will if you will. But given that you won't, he has determined to save some. Why this many and no other? We're not told. My favorite theologian, B.B. Warfield, said that his love drove him to save as many people as the rest of his holy attributes would allow him to save. That's a good way to put it. But clearly love is used in in differing senses, and his compassion is toward all, and he's willing to save, and in that sense he loves all. But in a saving sense, that's restricted to his chosen ones. All right, I hope that helps. One more. Awesome, I got to be the last question. So um, this is kind of a, this is a question I've never really heard addressed or answered before, but um, it seems like uh, God has a more active role in the hardening and destruction of people than is given to him a lot of times. Like the, the hardened in Romans 9 seems to be inactive. I don't, I don't speak any Greek. It, it's all equations mm-hmm. to me, but... Uh, it also speaks about resisting his will, and you know, once again, Paul doesn't, you know, back up and say, "No, that's not what I'm saying." He goes ahead, you know, like you're saying, and uh, it it talks in other places in the Bible about he will delight to destroy Israel if they mm-hmm. break his commandments. There seems to be this idea of like the pleasure of the destruction of enemies. So, are we tying God's hands and kind of? trying to let him off the hook for destroying people? Or is he a reluctant punisher of the evil? Good question. Um, I don't think we are tying his hands. I think what I'm representing is the scriptural representation of it. Now, if we're going to say that God takes an active, more active role in hardening sinners... That is a very logical inference of the doctrine that we've seen this evening. But it's one of those cases where a logical inference goes beyond the Scripture and, in fact, seems to go contrary to Scripture. Because God, if I can back up, God does not stand behind good and evil 
in the same way. He stands behind all that is. All that is here is because of his creation. But God does not stand behind good and evil in the same way. He stands behind good in such a way that he gets all the credit for it. He stands behind evil in such a way that you get all the blame for it. Why? Because it's your fault. Because you did what you wanted to do, and what you wanted to do you, was with malintent and with evil in your heart, and you did what you wanted to do, and you sinned. And so it's your fault. And the, the responsibility and the blame lies with you. In the same way, you see, it's asymmetrical. In the same way, in salvation, it's all him. But in another sense, the judgment, it's your fault, because he would have if he would have. And I think that's the, the biblical representation of it. And I don't, I don't want to go beyond the word, however much sense it m- might make in one, one level. Uh, I think that's the way the, well, it is the way the, biblical, the Bible represents it. Particularly, like I say, in Ezekiel, in those passages of the watchman. Why will you die? Why will you? God pleading with sinners. And again, I think it's beneath him. But that's part of his glory that he has revealed for us, and I don't want to miss it. All right. Does that help? Sort of. All right, well, all right. Thanks, you've been a great audience. It's been, been a blessed time this evening. Thank you. Yeah. Let me leave you with a few interpretive suggestions for your Bible reading in general. One from the Puritans, that we shouldn't be surprised when God is bigger than we thought and we are smaller than we thought. When in doubt, go with that uh, lens for your interpretation of Scripture. A second one would be, and Fred alluded to it, we interpret the, the implicit passages with the explicit ones. Or you could even say, we interpret the small ones with the big ones. Boy, is Paul persistent in Romans 9. And don't let one little verse that might mean this or that throw out a whole chapter where now you have to say, yeah, I just don't go there. We do Romans 8, and then we leapfrog to Romans 10. I don't know what Romans 9 means, but boy, I sure love this one verse. Be careful of that. A third would be, let's be careful that God isn't different than we previously thought. Or let's be careful that our concepts of justice or fairness or what love is or or these sorts of things are not preconceptions. I think one of the first couple questions over here, maybe the second question was related to that. Let's be careful that we don't bring our sense of autonomy and um, and it will and, and freedom and all these things um, into the text and assume, well, that has to be this, so therefore let me put this on the passage. Let's, let's let the passage speak for itself, um, even when it's shocking and when it seems un-American, right? We're equal opportunity folks, so this just goes against us uh, in so many ways. And, and my fourth encouragement to you is just, if this is disturbing to you or confusing to you, um, don't give up yet. Don't just say, well, it's a question mark. Who knows? Let's get busy. There are parts of God's word that talk about this and not small parts of God's word that talk about this. It's not infrequent. So I think there is more to say than there are some weird things that talk about God being sovereign. I don't know. Let's just pray or let's just whatever. Uh, whatever those things are, whether it's witnessing or praying, they're heavily affected by God's sovereignty and, uh, and they are revealed in God's word. And, and does it mean we can solve all the mysteries of the universe or 
who God is completely? No. But let's take serious what he has revealed in his word.